we acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lestrician and I'm here with Natalie Smattis. Hey, how's it going? In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Matt Gibbs. Dr. Matt Gibbs is an assistant professor of classics in the Department of Humanities at McCune University. Having moved from the University of Winnipeg in 2020, he holds a doctorate in ancient history from the University of Oxford. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much. We are very excited to have you on our podcast today. Thank you for the invite. So we have a very interesting field of study. Um, Just kind of curious about what got you into this field and what your research is about. That's a really broad question. Um, <laughs> the The impetus for my research was largely a few professors in my undergraduate degree. This should be a really common theme, I think, for listeners at least, and for maybe yourselves. The, I was influenced a lot by a particular professor at the University of Leicester in terms of ancient history. I always wanted to be an archaeologist, and he told me it was not the right way to go in not so many terms. And uh, yeah, I ended up majoring in ancient history at the University of Leicester. And then I was lucky enough to be funded to go to the University of Oxford. So I did quite well. Worked hard, but did really, really well. So, um, And generally, I was always interested in the, um, I guess, the lower class of people in the ancient world. So my research is generally always towards that, or at least the, it's focused towards that more often than anything else. How did they portray themselves? How did they see the world in which they lived? Because I find it a little more interesting than, you know, another treatment of, oh, look, Julia, Julius Caesar is doing this again. I'm not really that interested <laughs> yeah. in that right. so, anymore. Used to be, but less so as I, as I get older, I find. Moving more towards the, I guess, the common people who aren't largely represented in particular types of evidence that we have. So those big monuments like, the, you know, like palaces, imperial palaces, things like that. That's very interesting. Um, when I was reading your paper, you were talking about um, innovations and how the Romans had innovated so many different things. And when I think about ancient times, I don't really think about, yeah, like the common people. It's mostly just kings and queens and pharaohs. And I don't really think about the common people, but in reality, those are like our ancestors, basically. So... Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about trade associations in Roman Egypt. Can you talk a little bit about this paper? Yeah, so most of my research, (laughs) I've got to be very careful how I phrase this, depending on who hears it. (laughs) Um, Most of my real research, that that would cause me to cringe a little bit. The, the stuff that I guess people would be, much, um, at least academics are more interested in, falls under the realm of the Hellenistic and Roman economy in Egypt. And part of that is based on the evidence that we have. So for a long time, uh, Egypt was seen as being unique, atypical in terms of a Hellenistic kingdom and a Roman province, largely because of the form of the evidence that we have, the papyri. Uh, that appears in a variety of different languages. 
the stuff that I deal with is mainly all in ancient Greek. Um, we talk about it when we, when we well, at least paprologists talk about it as a uh, as a bottom up approach to society. So we don't look at what the Roman government or the Hellenistic kingdom did. We try and look at what the people are talking to the state about, I guess, more often than anything else. And so I think it brings you closer, at least for undergraduate students particularly, as well as for me. Admittedly, this is why I do it. It brings us closer to, I think, the people who lived back then. And, you know, we often talk about the way in which we relate to the ancient world and how we do that and what the point of it is. And without trying to get into a political <laughs> discussion about it, um, there is something that we can talk about in terms of how they looked at their lives and their concerns. And that's what we often see in the papyri. We see concerns about money. So if you're worried about paying your phone bill or your credit card, we actually see that. And so you can look at the ancient economy, which is what I was very interested in when I was a younger academic, in those terms, I think. And so, yeah, that largely reflected the choice of doctoral topic I wanted to do. So when I was an undergraduate, so for instance, there's a Professor Colin Adams, who's at the University of Liverpool now. He was at the University of Leicester. He's a Roman papyrologist and Roman historian. And he actually helped me formulate uh, a my undergraduate dissertation. And it was on taxation and requisitions. And so taxation in terms of the Roman state taxing the Egyptian populace when it became part of the Roman Empire. Um, requisitions, so things like military and state requisitions, demands for, I don't know, uh, transportation. I was going to say donkeys, <laughs> which is precisely what it is, but you can't study Egypt without looking at donkeys in some way. Um, and uh, so people's livelihood was often taken away. So those, that type of biblical thing where you hear about the, ro the evil Roman tax collector mm -hmm. and the evil Roman soldier, these are largely right, yeah. reflected. They are literary tropes or stereotypes and... We do hear those complaints, and we do see those complaints in the papyri. And uh, the professional associations just allowed me to work in the economy and to look at these people generally. I mean, the professional associations are effectively, to use a very, very bad analogy, a little like modern trade unions. Mm -hmm. um, That's what I was thinking, reading that paper as well. Yeah. It kind, of, it kind of, like, there's lots of similarities, too. Yeah, yeah, they're 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 not really protected by law <laughs> in the ancient world, um, and uh, yeah, one's request for leaves are often turned down, I think. But um, anyway, in, what you effectively see, I guess, is a burgeoning professionalization and specialization in in certain trades. I mean, we don't have like professional associations for every single trade, but they vary quite widely, and they also are specialized to a certain extent, at least in terms of the process. So what I mean is you don't necessarily just have metalsmiths. You have things like silversmiths and goldsmiths and nailsmiths. People only make nails. I quite frankly yeah. can't imagine a worse job than that, but <laughs> just making nails for your entire life. Um, and uh, But we see, we see uh, the differentiation in, and the specialization in these professions in that particular area, as well as things like weaving and such and, and, and those types of things. And it's interesting because there's a, there's a line of thought that runs at specialization in an economy, suggests that there's a demand for different things, and therefore the economy is probably more, uh, is probably more complicated than one necessarily thinks it was. Mm -hmm. And that's the argument, I think, mm -hmm. throughout at least my work.
Yeah. It's very interesting, too, reading about how everyone kind of had a part to play. Back to taxes. Was that a system that was developed by the Romans? No. I mean, taxation goes back much further in history, but the Romans, I think, I, I think it would be fair to say, brought the systems of taxation to a new level, and mm-hmm. at least in terms of systems of extraction. Mm. Uh, that's my opinion. You know, in humanities, we're allowed to have different opinions. Of so, course, yeah. <laughs> generally, I think that that is a, that's a good thing. But uh, yeah, I I mean the the interesting thing about the overall, I mean, if we look at the Roman tax system. If we take the Roman tax system for example, we look at it. The Roman taxation uh, provided the state with a viable income, but they were very very interested in private enterprise. So, and we see this in Egypt. So, for instance. Uh, under the Ptolemies, who were the kings and queens who effectively ran Egypt before the Romans came in, just before the turn of the first millennium, so like zero CE. They operated a system of monopolies, although ideas around that are now changing too, but these ideas of monopolies were effectively parceled out to the highest bidder more often than not, and then the, the state would take a cut of that. Oh, okay. The Romans were much, they did away with the system of monopolies generally and operated it in terms of license fees. So, again, this will be full of bad analogies, I'm afraid. (laughs) It's okay. It's a little like a franchise. So it's a little like lots and lots of Tim Hortons. But if you imagine Tim Hortons, it was effectively responsible for a particular tax. So you would go in and instead of buying coffee, you would have to pay your money over. Mm -hmm. Much less fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yes. It's bad enough as it is. so looking at the taxation and these aspects of the economy, it does allow us to see how people operated and how people what they had to deal with. Um, and it does allow us to a certain degree, although badly, again, admittedly, um, it does allow us to calculate like relative wealth. We probably will never really know a great deal about the, the very, very poor in, in the ancient world, which is a shame because, of course, those are the people who we should be more interested in uh, and and mo- many of my colleagues, particularly those that work on Egypt, are trying to focus on the people, on these people outside of the elite. We we tend to talk about these people as being more like us, and that's where I think the interest is. But the problem is, is that it's a society that was two thousand years ago, and it, they're not really like us at all. I've just probably demolished my entire. <laughs> no one's going to want to come and take a class anymore after that. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it is easy to see ourselves in them. I, a long time ago, I wrote a chapter on, on the Roman economy and spoke to a bunch of students, several groups of students, in fact, and I tried to ask them, well, how could I make teaching the Roman economy more interesting? Because it is desperately boring, generally. And uh, they said, well, you know, we would like to talk more about things like credit, money, how much were people paid? Could they buy houses? Uh, were, you know, these are the very these are the things that made them more like us. Mm-hmm. We could like relate to it. More. Yeah, I mean, even with your your bad analogies, I'm I'm still <laughs> no no no. <laughs> but that's, well, that's good, but that's exactly the point, right? I think yeah. I think that's the thing that's very very important. So I wrote this chapter for this textbook, which I edited, and um, it, it did very very well. But what's interesting is that when it came to the second edition and the reviews came in, many people still weren't interested in teaching the economy. Again, that's absolutely fine. I've I'm not surprised in the slightest. <laughs> um, but the critiques that came in were things like, well, you know, you haven't looked at the history of the economy or uh, the historiography of economic writing on the ancient mm. world. And these are the very same things that make students bored. 
And they well. bore me. So, I mean, if they, must, if they bore me, they must. I, I'm not interested in rehashing the arguments again and again and again and again. These old arguments that have been. We're still fighting against a book that was written, for instance, what year is it? 30 years, 50 years ago now. Uh, Moses Finley's The Ancient Economy book. We people still. Still use it? Still use it. Hmm. I have a, I'm working on a book right now on professional associations, and it's. Um, yeah, I, st I, I have a whole paragraph critiquing it. But it's been done over 50 years, half a century ago, and I'm still railing about it. But it does show the influence, I guess, that right. people have. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the notion of taxes provide, because we have to pay taxes now, you know. Yep. Is that, yeah. <laughs> Makes us curious about how well, it was before, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult. The, the problem for us is it's difficult to get, to, to really dial down into it mm. is quite difficult, like in terms of percentages and how much people earn. Yeah. I guess, yeah, because the value of money has gone, you know, it's very oh, yeah. changed throughout all the years. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd, betray my, I'd be betraying my age if I said, I, well, yeah, things are much more expensive. <laughs> that kind of had me thinking, too, about um, the classes and the division of wealth. Right now we see kind of like middle class and lower class is a grand percent of our population. And it's probably the same as ancient Egypt or ancient Rome. Um, do you know a little bit about like percentages of like was it mainly middle class, lower class? Oh, that's a really, really good question. Um, part of the problem is that our modern definitions of class necessarily are linked to status. So you can say, I'm an elite person, and so I'm very, very wealthy. Right. Uh, but you can take someone like I'm. Julius Caesar, for example, yeah. as I roll my eyes, try not to roll my eyes. <laughs> we can talk about Julius Caesar, who was actually from, he, when Julius Caesar was born, his family were actually very poor. They, well, they weren't very poor, but they were at best uh, probably lower middle class. And yet he could still look back in his family history and say, you know, I'm related to the goddess Venus. <laughs> um, so our ideas of status and class now in the modern day are far more closely connected than they probably would have been. In terms of makeup, in terms of percentages, that's a really good question, but a really difficult to answer. The 1% was probably broad. It was probably more like 10%. Oh. The notion of billionaires is difficult to see, but, but there were exceptionally wealthy people in the ancient world. So there probably was a 10% of the elite, and within that 10%, there was 1%, which were. Right, okay. But not in the same way as, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff, Bezos <laughs> territory. Um, yeah, and then probably maybe 20 or 30% then upper of uh, middle class um, and then a and the rest. vast <laughs> proportion of, of poor people, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was curious about that. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what you use to build your research and build your arguments, I guess. Uh, so when I first began my studies in ancient history, mm -hmm. uh, we're largely led by things that we find interested in courses. I'm sure you do. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Yep. And then yep. you read more about that. And instead of actually doing the work that you're supposed to do, you go and read other <laughs> things. And, and I can tell you that doesn't ever change, ever, even if you even if you were lucky enough to, you know, become an academic and get a job in, in, this, in these areas. Um, we never do what we're supposed to. But... Uh, Generally, it was focused, initially it was focused on you'll find something in translation or in a letter or if your ancient languages are good enough. I used to find these things that I was interested in. 
And they could be something as small as a line in a te- in a, in prose or a line in in an ancient text. Um, so in my case, uh, the the professional associations, the trade associations thing actually came from a series of texts that were written by the associations themselves and deposited in a local graphéon, like a local uh, administrative office. Mm. Interesting. I guess like a town hall, a county council building, as I guess that you mm-hmm. have here. Uh, and then there was a an element of legitimacy given to it. You could actually be prosecuted under these things. So, you know, members could say, well, I didn't get my, you promised me a birthday celebration. I didn't get it, so I want the money back. And there are lots of these types of things uh, that we see in terms of these complaints from these members of these professional associations. Um, so that's how it started when I first became an academic, I guess, which... Uh, or at least when I first started, it's going to sound really pretentious, my journey on <laughs> academia. And uh, as we progress and as we as we deal more with undergraduate students, particularly, we're lucky enough to, and, it, and, I, and I do mean that, I'm not being facetious, I mean we're lucky enough to talk to students, particularly good students, and they provide ways in which we can see things differently. I always say this to students and people always roll their eyes at me. Like I, I say that I learn as much from students as they do, as I hope they do from me, which might not be very much generally, but um, they, it's the way in which people look at things. Because of course, we, while we deal with data, and I mean that in the most scientific sense, uh, particularly with the ancient alcohol thing, I have a Excel spreadsheet open in front of me which says beer data. And I'm talk, I can talk about <laughs> the dilution factor and... Mm-hmm. Uh, turbidity and colors and protein percentages in terms of weights, color determinations, wow. total acidities. I can talk and alkali. I can talk about all of this material, <laughs> um, and we and and it is data and it's clear and it's yeah. and mm-hmm. it's provable and it's mm-hmm. there. Whereas the other stuff we do. Um, so, for instance, I there are lots and lots of letters from, as I've said, as as I've alluded to, from uh, Ptolemaic and Roman Egypt. And some of them are from parents to children, some are from children to parents, some are from husband and wife to one another. And they can be interpreted in different ways, right? Like the way in which, oh, there are some horrible things that I could talk about and I'm trying not to. Um, (laughs) Well, there are, so there's a very famous letter which talks about a pregnancy and about whether it was unwanted or not. Mm. Um, And the way in which students deal with that is interesting to me and because uh, their interpretations of these types of things can actually change the way in which I think about these things. Cool. Um, We should go back to the ancient alcohols. Can you (laughs) explain a little bit about this and the history of this? Yeah. So uh, this is the problem. As academics, we, uh, we deal in at least in the humanities, and I, okay, I'm not going to even say humanities, I'll say at least in terms of Hellenistic and Roman history, we deal with material that is not generally accessible to people on the broad scale of things. And this actually goes back to my own research when we're talking about that. This idea of um, dealing with interests of students and trying to figure out how to teach them about the ancient, or you about the ancient world, we have to be able to show why what we do is important. 
it's this very famous meme. I'm sure you've seen it. It's the the it's the science can recreate dinosaurs, and there's a picture of a little man with a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Have you seen this thing? I think. I think so. And yep. it says <laughs> so. It says science can teach us how to recreate the dinosaurs, so the Jurassic Park thing. But then humanities will tell us why it's a bad idea. Right. So there's yep. a picture of mm. you know a Tyrannosaurus Rex looking all happy with a little man, <laughs> and then the man running away because he's about <laughs> to be eaten by this massive dinosaur. Of course. <laughs> And that's, I think, believe it or not, I think that sums up. I think that sums up academia generally. Apologies to anyone who is a science colleague, and I do have a number of them. But I, yeah, I'm sorry. But um, I, yes, I mean, this is why humanities is important. So why, especially in a world where our funding, and I'm, I'm trying not to get political about it, our funding in humanities is cut drastically, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of the problem because we spend a lot more time teaching and dealing with these types of ideas when we're trying to show people why what we do is important or in at least interesting what can it teach what can the study of the ancient world teach us about the modern world mm-hmm. why do we make the choices that we do um i guess is the is the point and as I moved from my career at the University of Winnipeg it became quite clear to me that I would have to have some sort of um, study some sort of idea that I could use to do that. And beer came from that because I, I like beer, I guess. Nice. <laughs> Admittedly, it wasn't my idea at all. Um, in Winnipeg, I lived in an area of the city called Wolseley, which is a very nice, now gentrified part of the city. I lived there for about 12 years. It was less gentrified when I moved in. <laughs> but... Um, with the interest in craft beer becoming more and more commonplace, there were more and more breweries opening up, up mm-hmm. in Winnipeg, and Barnhammer opened up within, it must have been, I can't even remember the year, 2016? The summer of 2016, I think they opened. Hmm. And my wife and kids moved out here in that year. Hmm. And I had to commute from Winnipeg, which is, I can assure Ooh. you, a very long way. Mm-hmm. Um I <laughs> spent too much time at the bar, basically. But I knew uh, I very quickly got to know the the owner who works incredibly hard. People think that it is simply a matter of opening up a pub or a bar and then brewing beer, and I can assure you it's not. Mm-hmm. I I watched my friend Tyler Birch work himself into the ground to make Barnhammer successful, um, as, as did the, the, the brewmaster, Ryan Westcott, who was actually uh, – he – Used to work for Alicat, mm. and, uh, number so lots of people in in uh, in Edmonton know him. Mm. He's, he's like the godfather of beer in Alberta, I think. <laughs> but um, he mentioned to me, Tyler mentioned to me that the that we were just having a drink one night after work, and he asked me if there was a, any sort of beer recipe, ancient beer recipe, and I said, I'm sure there is. And I hadn't looked into it. I knew there was stuff from the ancient period, but nothing in. I didn't know that there was anything from the Greek or Roman world. And there's one recipe, uh, which has traditionally been dated to the 4th or 5th century, depending on where you, where you believe it lies. But there are actually some problems with that. And a colleague of ours from in classics, from uh, who used to work at McEwen, um, has actually given a couple of papers about how that might not be the case, and it may actually be far later. But 
uh, yeah, that was that was literally it. We were we drank too much. Someone said, "Can you make ancient <laughs> beer?" And I found ancient beer, and then we tried to make it. And <laughs> that was so. Yeah, the 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 beer project, the heavy metal project, and particularly the beer project, uh, are ways f I think forward, mm -hmm. at least for me, and I because I'm interested in both. So they allow me to think more about. Um, this is something that existed in the ancient world. It's something that exists in the modern world. What's the difference? And what can it tell us? Mm -hmm. Like in terms of taste, in terms of cost, in terms of process. Oh, yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I, that's the, the impetus for the beer. Did you end up making the beer? We did. It was an arduous process. Um, so we tried to stick as closely to the recipe as as we could, mm -hmm. or at least the process as we could. And so we hand-milled barley and then sifted it uh, with a mesh. And it took us around, I don't even want to know. <laughs> I, a, a, a long time. <laughs> well, we took, I took, I was chair of the department in Winnipeg and I had a number of other things to do. So I'm, my housemate and I did it over the weekend. <laughs> nice. And Barnhammer actually were, were, were generous enough to help oh, out. that's awesome. Uh, so we hand milled everything in there. We needed a space, so we used their their uh, their, their actual brewery. Mm. Uh, and the idea was, there was actually a, a scientific reason for this as well. And that's because in in a modern brewery, there are as clean as they are, and sanitary as they are, they are. Mm -hmm. There are lots of different types of yeast that float around. Um, and there's a lot of interest right now. I think over the at least as there has been over the last five years in terms of spontaneous spontaneous brewing, spontaneous mm. fermentation, where mm. effectively you use, I mean, there's the air in here. Yeah. Um, and I think the choice of the Barnhammer Brewery to do that was a really, really good one. We could control the environment to a certain degree. Um, but yeah, the, the, the process was, was long. Um, we probably ground grain with a modern mill, so not even anything like what you know people in the ancient world would have used. I would say probably for about five hours, five or six hours, to wow. get enough for uh, uh, probably four or five liters worth of, of beer. Um, so it was a long, it was a long process. What was even worse with baking the bread? I mean, it took us twelve hours because we couldn't kill the enzyme. That was the whole point. Then this, we were trying not to kill the enzyme in the natural enzymes in the bread. So, it, yeah, it, we started baking it at something like 3 o'clock in the morning or 2 oh, two o'clock, 2.30 in the morning, I think it was. And then I had to go and teach. <laughs> and I had to go home and, and finish the baking. And then we had to go and uh, we had to brew it that night because, of course, we didn't want it to sit around. Yeah. Um, it was it was a, it was it was good. I'm I'm very very happy we did it. It, it got a lot of interest. Clearly, it got a lot mm -hmm. of interest, even though it was done a very very long time ago. And I'd I'd like to. There are a number of different things that we would like to do with it. And I'm hoping to start this up again in some serious way over the over the next six eight weeks. But uh, yeah, the pandemic really yeah knocked it on the head for a long time. But yeah, it it, it worked. It we we did manage to brew beer. I'm not sure how real mm. it was, um, I guess, in the sense that, was it authentic? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the environment was sanitary. It wasn't sterile, but it was certainly sanitary. Um, one good thing was we have no idea what actually created the, the fermentation, which is 
probably it could be it could have been anything. The very a very strange thing happened with this particular beer, and it was effectively it began to break down larger. It carbonated itself, which is very odd, which beer shouldn't necessarily do, and um, it continued to break down the sugars, the dextrins, some rather complex sugar compounds within it, which it also shouldn't have been able to do. So what we think is. Uh, at least myself and a scientist at the University of Winnipeg and the brewmaster Brian Westcott think happened was that some some form it's going to sound disgusting some form of bacteria likely got into it that created both that aided at least or maybe created some sort of second stage fermentation um, but we don't we have literally no idea what it was that the the <laughs> library that the scientists were using to test this stuff at the University of Winnipeg was not complex enough to actually identify the organism that caused the problems but it could have been anything anything in terms of it could have been some sort of horrible beard yeast yeast from someone's ar armpit I just yeah. even it, yeah <laughs> well, especially because so our funny. environment is so much different than ancient times when they were making that beer also, I did see in your paper you were talking about how they used alcohols for medicine. And that's kind of when you're when you're trying to think how to link it to things. When you're learning from things from ancient pasts or a couple of years ago, it's a building block. And so through this beer, maybe you're starting, you guys are finding new things to carbonate it itself. So maybe the brewers they can kind of learn something from this project. Yeah, there, there are, we created something that was, in terms of taste, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say it was exceptionally sour. Hmm. Um, I like sour beers. Some people really, really liked it. I thought it was absolutely foul. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, it was just awful. And I have drunk a lot of it. Um, but we created this, effectively what we did is we created a sour beer. So now sour beers generally, at least in terms of what you would drink in cans and in mm -hmm. breweries yep. in Edmonton, for instance, uh, take a very long time to, to make, to create, to, to ferment, brew, and so on and so forth. And some even sit for a long time. But this thing was done within a month. Hmm. Um, and it was just, yeah, I... The environment in which we did this was very, very different to what they would have done. And they wouldn't have cared. <laughs> they, <laughs> people who brewed this material, you know, in you know, 2,000 years ago did not care about how, how clean things were mm -hmm. necessarily. I mean, they may have washed them out. But, uh, yeah, we do find, we find um, this ancient beer is very, very low in alcohol. When we brewed it, it was around 3%, which is what we assumed. Mm -hmm. um, so... It would have been more useful to drink than water, I think, because of the problems with sanitary water conditions, you know, in the ancient world. Right. And uh, the alcohol does kill off some of the more, I think, aggressive pathogens generally. But, uh, yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not entirely. It would be interesting to actually find some and test it, but yeah. I don't think we can do that. Although we do have wine from the ancient world, so uh -oh. from the Roman world particularly, but it does look very unappetizing now after oh. 16, 1700 years. I bet. Oh. They stomp on it with their feet too. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. See, that's the thing. You, that's where the yeast would come from, right? Ah. That's where I guess the enzyme would come from. So. Guess you feet? missed that stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I said, there's still a lot of mileage in it and I do hope to return to it 
Cool. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, I think we're going to move on to talk about the piece on heavy metal and the use of classical ancient literature in history. Uh, well, the heavy metal thing was, um, it was my first attempt at uh, classical reception to try and find something that I was interested in that other people would also be interested in. And I mean, there were there are some people who are interested in heavy metal, um, fortunately. <laughs> but the impetus for that came out of, a, I, I, um, I wrote an abstract for a piece for a collected, uh, collected volume of, of papers, I think that I sent to you. Mm -hmm. And the, they liked it initially, but then they changed, the title of the book changed and it became about, so my piece is all about instrumental music because I'm far more interested in that than singers. I never liked singers, <laughs> even as a, <laughs> I could just, yeah, anyway. Um, so that was the, that, the impetus was to write a chapter for this thing and think about it differently. So I just looked at, I tried to look at the way in which music was reflected in, in terms of the choice of, I don't know, like notes, they effectively mm -hmm. notes that they used as well as how they appropriated titles. Um, and there's some weird and wonderful titles and how people would have, and it, because what it, the idea here is that you can look at how certain people, certain artists, and instrumentalists will take influences from other areas. That's mm -hmm. the first thing. But how they will be, how they will use those titles, and how that will be reflected in the music that they play. Right. Mm. Um, the ultimately the piece never went forward because the, as I said, the title of the book changed and it became more about nationalism, which is how we often see heavy metal. Heavy metal has a has a bad. Yeah, rap, rap. generally, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, it's difficult to talk about the far right when and nationalism when you have music with no lyrics. So that was yeah, why that was yeah. part of why it changed. <laughs> but there are, I do think there are certain things that we can say about it. Like there are, there there's a guitar, there's a guitarist called uh, Tony McAlpine, who when I was playing, it was a huge influence on me when I was growing up. But um, there's this piece called Agrionia, which effectively means marketplace, and it appears in only one ancient author. And I don't believe in coincidences in that regard. And I think there are something like only 16 um, instances in the ancient record. So either he's made up something which appears in one ancient author magically, or he's read it somewhere. At some point in his life, he's seen this, and he might have just thought, oh, that's a cool name for a song. And I'm, that's fine. I abs I'm very happy to see that. But the choice of the notes that he uses as well, the, the, the types of scales that he uses to, they suggest, they make suggestions about certain things, right? Cool. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share today? No, I'm fine. No? I, I mean, yeah, if you've got any other questions for me, I'm happy to answer. No, I think we are good. Thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed it. Yes, no. me too. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast. Brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McCune University. 
Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logician and Natalie Smattis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smattis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Logician. And our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.